0: Hi, I'm so excited to have you on the show. You are a founder, you're a former operator. Turns out that you've also been a fan of the show. So happy to have you on the show. Could you share a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. I found about the show, you know, on LinkedIn, on my morning news segment. Basically, as every morning, I go sit with my coffee in front of my computer and I check the news and I listen to your podcast in the morning to hear about founder journeys in the region, in Southeast Asia. So, you know, it's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Could you share more about yourself personally and professionally? Of course. So my name
1: is Thibault. I'm from France. I am currently the co-founder and CEO of uh, Caption. Caption is an all-in-one influencer marketing platform for e-commerce brands in Southeast Asia. We basically help hundreds of brands connect with influencers every day and we try to make it as easy as possible for them that's basically what we do. Awesome. How did you get into
0: technology? Yeah.
1: I did a lot of things, you know, since I graduated I was into VC and you know finance and uh, at some point I decided to join Lazada in its early days in Hong Kong and I think this is where my career changed drastically. As a fresh grad you always think traditional career paths consulting and yeah my career changed when I joined the e-commerce space in the region. Obviously Lazara was already, you know, in its Early days, and it was already a fast-growing company with very promising prospects. And that was a massive career change for me. And it was being in this region and seeing the digital space grow as it did for four years was was massive. And after four years, me and my co-founder Kuse, we basically it, it became so obvious for us that the place to be was social media in the region. And we decided to co-found this you know, to found this company because the discussion in the e-commerce player industry was so much around social media and how to drive consumers from social media to e-commerce platforms that it was a very natural step for us to, to, to start this company.
0: So how did you decide to work for Lazada? Because you know, it was both a geography shift as well as an industry shift for you at that time. So how did you choose to do that?
1: several reasons. I actually, you know, when I was younger, I spent eight years of my younger years in Asia, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and in Korea, in South Korea, in Seoul. And I consider, <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Southeast Asia, and uh, I've always had an itch to come back. And uh, basically, one of my best friends was working at the time for Lazara. He left to co-found his own company in shipping. And he basically brought me in before he left. And this is how I got started in the region, basically. Obviously, I was not completely happy with my career choices before. And uh, I think changing completely region and industry was for me also like a a need, a personal need. And um, I wanted to work in a fast-growing industry where everything happens extremely fast and uh, where you are owner of what you do. And this is exactly what I found at Lazara at the time, is a company where there's no job description. You get given responsibilities if you want them, and you basically become a project manager day one. They give you a computer, you sit down at a desk, (laughs) and you start speaking to people. And the projects kind of fall on you when you want them. And this is what I loved, and this is why I tried to bring onto Caption, is I want to work with people who believe in the space, and who, you know, are owners of the things that they do. And I think that passion was shared across so many people at Lazara and now here at Caption. I think is the common denominator is, is that conviction that we're working for something bigger. And that's what I loved about going to work every day in the last seven years of my life.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting is that twenty fifteen to twenty eighteen was that you know huge surge of e-commerce across Southeast Asia. What Aspects about it did you find interesting personally?
1: There's a massive social media e-commerce penetration in the region. People are very keen to shop online. I think a lot of products were made available that were not before by e-commerce players in the region at very random locations. The metro areas were very well served for a while. But I think there are so many islands and remote locations in Southeast Asia. That are hard to serve, that you know I was working in operations and shipping products to far-off islands and making sure that the level of assortment they have is nice, is sufficient and is qualitative was one of our missions. And we brought in millions of products from brands that they wanted to have, and that was kind of like the drive we had every day was making sure that that happened. But obviously, what's fascinating is the mission was, when I started, was bring in millions of products. And after four years, we also you know, realized, okay, now there are millions of products and they're shipped fast in the region. It took you know, five, six, seven days for cross-border items to come to your doorstep. But only 1% of the assortment of the products that are on e-commerce websites are seen, are even seen by customers. And this is where you know, it hit me that brands really want to have the tools to advertise and make sure their products are seen. And this is where social media kicks in. Because today, people truly discover products not on the e-commerce portal or the websites of the brands, but on social media. Because it's hard to browse an e-commerce website. You rarely go past page two or three of a, of a category, right? So there are hundreds of pages and products that are behind who are waiting to be seen and boosted from great sellers and from great brands. And, um, and this is where social media is great destination for brands to spend money and to be seen.
0: Yeah. So why did you decide to become a founder in influencer marketing and content creators versus being an operator in it versus you know, joining someone else's thing?
1: I think I've always had an itch. There are several things, but I've always had an itch you know, as a kid growing up. I was always that, that kid who you know, looked at something from country and was like, why is this not here? This should be here. Or you know, I traveled a lot in my life. I've lived in 12 different countries in my you know, and 33. I've always felt that there are so many things that belong to a culture that other cultures would appreciate, or best practices that are done in a country that should be shared more. And I think that was my itch was to launch my own thing and to be owner of what I do, set up a company, identity, vision, a workplace that I like to go to every day and that people that work with me you know like to go to as well. I think that's that's one. For influencer marketing more specifically, obviously it's the opportunity happened. But I think what triggered me was when Alibaba acquired Lazara while I was working at Lazara, we were sent with a bunch of people from Lazara cross-border. We were sent to Hongzhou, to their headquarters in China, where we spent six months on campus. And that was a life-changing experience as well for me because it opened my eyes on a lot of things. I mean, first of all, Chinese seller and brand ecosystem is extremely developed. They are very, very advanced on social media, uh, live streaming, e-commerce, social commerce tools, and a lot of the brands that were there, uh, and international brands that were using Tmall or you know Alibaba-owned marketplaces, they wanted to spend money first and foremost on social media because for them it was the obvious thing to do. And when we tried to bring in these brands into Southeast Asia as Lazara, we realized that the tools that were at our disposal as a company to offer a good service to the brands that wanted to do that were very limited. And this is where it hit us. Somebody has to do this. And then obviously the fact that I was surrounded by the right people and my life at the time, my age, where I was in my life, everything was aligned made it that we started captioning. But yeah, that was definitely the trigger was that trip. I mean, that stay in Hangzhou was definitely a, a massive trigger.
0: What aspects about that stay was really important in triggering that change? Because you could go to France and have your life change, right? You could go to America and have your life change. You could go to Indonesia or Vietnam and have your life change. So there's something about China and Hangzhou that you're implying. I just want to kind of get what you're actually... Talking about what aspects of it changed?
1: Yeah, I think it's right next door. One of the first expansions that brands in Asia they expand in the region first. And seeing that there was no solution made available to a country that was right next door, and that is obviously massive, made it that. For us, it was a natural step for us to do this because we were in Hangzhou, a few kilometers away, and we found it crazy that there was no tool at the disposal of brands that were already listed in Southeast Asia. A lot of these brands were already trying to sell to Thailand and Indonesia and the Philippines that are you know massive social media and e-commerce countries. But without these tools, doing our research, we, we realized that you know there were lots of agencies and services and aggregators, but no platform nothing to make it as easy as possible for brands to do that. Yeah, I think the proximity, the geographic proximity was the, also the additional trigger. And obviously, the social media penetration in the region is so high that um, it was a no-brainer for us to to go into the space.
0: There's a lot of uh, hope, obviously, with China's emergence in a global stage. And I think that's what you're talking about. And there's also a lot of fear, right? So could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, because you know, you're know you talking about China as a role model So how do you think people should navigate that? Like you're looking at China as a inspiration or benchmark for technology. How do you think about that?
1: So I think our stay in in Hangzhou was a trigger to launching the company. I wouldn't say it's a role model. I think the Chinese model works really well on certain things, like on live shopping and live streaming It's ahead of its time and industry, I think, is a leader in that space. Influencer marketing is so much more than that, that commerce it's PR, it's assets for brands to use on their website, it's connections with people, it's feedback, it's engagement with your customers, it's finding new customers. Other markets might be better at that than, than China. Obviously, the trigger was that stay in China, but we are looking at, you know, obviously the US and Europe as well that are very advanced in that space in terms of companies funding Process and you know the spend of brands in that space is also for us a role model. Obviously, China is again a huge market and uh, is right next door. But there are so many other countries that are doing it very well, but differently. Now, in regards to you know how people view China, again, it's a, it's a sensitive topic. I lived in Hong Kong. I'm married to a Hong Kong woman, and obviously, it's a sensitive topic. We are obviously working with Chinese brands because they are exporting their products in the world. We are very open to working with any brand that wants to expand internationally using social media. But we don't operate in China right now for many reasons. I think the Chinese market deserves to be, you know, if you want to enter China as a business, you need to be implemented in China. And we don't operate in China right now. We have no influencers in China because again i think they have their own best practices that very specific to china so we operate everywhere but china obviously brands need to export and to promote their products abroad and this is where we help them
0: very interesting here. so you're yeah, really servicing as this bridge right between kind of like the east and west or east and western and world would you say the major differences between how the chinese practice influencer marketing or creator brand sponsorships versus uh, the rest of the world? I was telling
1: you before, I think social media influencer marketing in China is very transaction driven, which is not true of many other countries. I think it is ahead in that sense, in the commerce aspect of social. I think it is behind in terms of branding aspect of influencer marketing. Again, I think in Southeast Asia, to speak about the market where we are operating the most. It is in between. Brands are discovering as well the space and they are doing multiple activities to promote their brands and their services or their products. So I think, yeah, the, difference, the main difference is every single brand in China is looking at return on investment as with the key metric that is traffic and sales. And that is the number one concern on every brand and seller in China. In the region, you know, uh, in Southeast Asia or in other markets, I think there are so many other factors that come into the KPIs are very different. The success factors are very different depending who you're talking to in the, in in a company. You know, we are working with a lot of PR teams, for example, from brands who simply want their brand to be mentioned. Their KPI is brand mentions on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. They want to see their brand be used, be experienced. We have branding teams who want their brand to be used well, and they want the assets that come out of these collaborations to be pretty. And the goal is, I don't want to simplify, but the goal is almost prettiness. Because these are assets that will end up on as hero image on an SKU, or they will end up as a banner on their website. And they know that it's cheaper to do that via an influencer than to hire a photographer and a model in a country. So you localize the content very easily via a solution like ours. So many different success factors that depends what your brand wants to do. And I think this is why it differs a bit is, is uh, I guess, the, the multiple layers that uh, other markets offer uh, that I really enjoy because I think it makes the industry very exciting to see so many different activities being done in that space.
0: When you look at Southeast Asia, how do you see that relationship between Southeast Asia and China playing out in terms of technology? You know, either from creative economy or whatever aspect that you're comfortable talking about?
1: Southeast Asia is an amazing region. It has countries that are very different from each other, so close to each other. I mean it's a big region. It's a big region in population and you know geographically. Of course, it has influences from everywhere in the world. I always talk about the Philippines, it has Quite a lot of American influences in the country. People spend over four hours a day on social media in the Philippines, which is absolutely insane when in the rest of the world is around two hours a day. Every country is different, and that's what makes it so unique. And this is why it's a market now. It's a region that brands are not ignoring anymore. And this is something I witnessed during Lazada. It was left on the side a bit for a while. For example, to speak about China or Korea or Japan that have so many international brands that are exporting and have been successful in the fashion and space uh, in the beauty industry. They were first going to Europe or the US, you know, or North America. Amazon obviously was the success of Amazon also facilitated that. But now there are teams that are whose only purpose is to develop the brands in the region. It's a region on its own. It's not doesn't suffer from too many influencers. I think it created its own identity over the last few years in the e-commerce and social media space. It's, it's richer from the influencers from China, but also from other markets. That's, I guess, what I want to say.
0: What's interesting is that you've been an operator and now a founder and CEO. What have you learned since your journey of being a founder over the past uh, three and a half years?
1: Yeah. One thing that we uh, always, you know, when you come into it, the, the entrepreneur journey, you're always filled with so much excitement and energy. And, um, and obviously the beginnings are easy. What surprised me was the, the time it, it came, the time, when the time came for us to reach out to investors and to advertise our brand with people that we had never spoken to before and you know when you get to go do your research and you know browse through hundreds of funds i think i didn't expect this process to be as long as it did you know and for any entrepreneurs who are out there listening it is a process that requires it's a full time job fundraising is a full time job and you know as a co-founder and ceo i was very involved in the operations of my business every day you know digging in and getting my hands dirty to make sure that we had the best traction possible and i think the the lesson here is you know make sure you're Well, you're working with a team that will also take weight off your shoulders while you are doing this because it deserves your full attention. You are creating relationships with funds. You need to speak with them. You need to sell yourself. And I think this is something that is time-consuming and is um, energy draining. Yes, surround yourself well and make sure that there's no other tasks around you that are taking your focus away from, from, from that because obviously your goal as well as a CEO is to... Make sure your company has you know money to develop itself, and it's a priority always, of course. So yeah, I think this is what I didn't expect. I thought that I could do it all. I thought I could, you know, uh, every day do the operations and the fundraise. And uh, I think I found out that this is something that needs 100% of your time to, to perform.
0: How do you balance between fundraising and operations? You have touch points.
1: You make sure that the people who work with you are owners. This comes back to my point of having passionate people around you. And I'm I have so many. I mean, Kuse is an amazing co founder with me. He has the qualities that I have and he also has the ones that I don't. Having somebody, this is why, you know, I, I wanted to found to to launch a company with somebody that I knew it was also because I knew how they worked. I knew how professional they were. And when the time came, you know, it's about communication he was amazing in understanding the priorities of the business and taking out more than he, he should have taken. But this is what the, also the entrepreneur journey is all about, is a human experience. And that's fantastic because it's all about adjusting and learning. And I'm a first-time founder. And uh, I mean, our growth, my growth, my personal growth, but our growth as a team in the last three years has been absolutely phenomenal.
0: On that note, could you share with us a time that you have been brave? Yeah, of course. There are so many <laughs> moments that uh,
1: you know, I wanna I wanna list here. I wanna have a word, you know, for the people who are around us in our personal lives that are supportive of what we do. I think their energy and their support and the discussions that they have with us every day is so key. But the subject I wanna discuss here because I think it will maybe speak to other entrepreneurs in the region is when we started caption, we were actually three co-founders initially and i want to share that experience because we parted ways with one of them along the way and i think that has been a brave moment for the company for me personally because it was somebody you know when you work every day with someone it's hard to part ways we are in great terms today and we still speak and he has gone on to launch another company that has just gone funding so you know i'm really happy for him and we still grab a beer when he's in town and but the brave moment is about also realizing and, and facing the fact that uh, it's better sometimes to part ways than to force a relationship uh, where you don't 100% agree on a vision. I think for businesses to thrive, you need to be 100% on the end destination. You can disagree on processes and how you get there. And obviously you will always zigzag your way into reaching your goals. But the end vision, if, if there's not a 100% alignment, it is complicated. And I think we had a really great conversation, a mature one, where we said, I think it's best if, if we don't fight about this. I think it's best if we agree to disagree, but we need to do this how we set out to do it. The brave moment is that, is to fully understand what's happening and to then make sure that you are well in your boots and you, are, you face the reality and you go to your investors and you explain to them, with rush you know with full understanding what's happening, what the situation is. And I think that's something that is hard to do and that uh, in, entrepreneurs should not be afraid to do when the, when it happens because it's not a big deal. It, it can be a strength as well. I think investors and the people in the company see it as a, as a conviction that you are sure of what you're doing instead of a weakness. And if you can showcase that the you know your passion and your vision and if you can explain it well, everything will then
0: follow through. How do you even have that conversation with your co-founder in the beginning where it's either business disagreement and then eventually becomes a departure, but something in between is so tough, right? And rough to even acknowledge. So how is it like to have that awkward, difficult conversation? I think
1: the conversation every day, when it starts to affect the business, this is when I think the conversations happen. Because you spend time discussing vision is something that takes time and takes a lot of energy because you are doing this outside of the operations. It's something that obviously you don't necessarily share with your employees every day because, again, they need a destination to be fully committed to what they're doing. And so having these side conversations is something that you always should do because they're, they're so important for yourself as well i think it's it's a it's a test of your vision as well to constantly face it with counter arguments and i think it only makes it stronger when it becomes a problem for your everyday life too much i think the discussions happen naturally because even the person I used to work to work for, uh, with Mathieu and i and Cousse, you know we all you know again had a very mature discussion and it was not one moment it was over several months where we realized that um, you no, know, it was not. It was not meant to be. It was easier for everybody to part ways. So again, yeah, I think it was not like there was no one trigger. I think it's uh, over because we appreciate ourselves and I think we like working together. It was too hard to not agree again, a hundred percent. And I'll spare you know the details on on what, but. Yeah, I think over a few months you kind of go to the conclusion that it's it's best to not continue together.
0: How do you do that? Because sometimes it's scary, right? Especially if you have to announce it to maybe some customers, some supporters, investors. So a lot of founders are like, Okay, I don't want to do it because it looks bad. So how do you advise founders to process that or announce it or share it?
1: We were very lucky because we are we were in and we are still in great terms with the person who left. And he was extremely mature and, and professional in the way we transitioned up him out. Obviously, it doesn't always happen like this. So you know, depending on your situation, it will be different. But my advice here is speak. Speak to each other about the reasons why it's not working. Be very open and transparent day one. Like I think what made this process easy for us was over communication when it started, when we started feeling this way, I think this is the key is to never keep things for yourself especially between co-founders I mean they're at the same time they're your best friends because you're spending every day with them every single day you're struggling but you're also excited and you're having fun every day with them so feel free to share with them because you know they're the people you chose they were never imposed to you and you chose them for a reason remember why why you partnered with them in the first place make sure they know how special they are to you, and and then tell them. Tell them why it's not working in a very simple way. you know. And if they are the person that you partnered with, then they will understand and, and it will be extremely simple. Again, we were very lucky. I've heard other stories that didn't end up like this. But I wanted to address it because I didn't want it to be a taboo, and I think other co-founders should not let it be a taboo. It can be easy. It can be easy, and I think for investors as well, They appreciate that honesty and they only reinforce the bond you have with them because it creates another story. It adds to your experience and it shows resilience and how confident you are about your vision also because you're willing to do the things that need to be done for your business to thrive, right? So this is what I took on from from that experience is it made us stronger. I got so much closer as well to my other co-founder, when that happened, and we kind of also found each other from a trio to a duo, the dynamics are very different as well. And again, it was an exciting new start. We never saw it as a negative. Why
0: is co-founder breakups or departures or transitions a taboo? There
1: is this misconception from entrepreneurs, not from anybody else. From entrepreneurs that it shows that you, you couldn't hold your own. It's a challenge to your vision or your management when somebody leaves. I think it's not. I think every company has departures. And I mean, the turnover in, in companies, especially young ones, is extremely high because not everybody fits to the entrepreneur journey. It takes a certain type of people as well to be in the startup journey. Uh, I think it requires a certain mentality, a lot of ownership, a lot of courage, I think, to face the uncertainty of a business that you know might not exist six months, a year from now. When you start, that is the hard reality. And the people who join you are people who believe in what you tell them the, the journey will be. You sell them the end goal, the end destination. So I think it is taboo when somebody leaves, especially somebody so important at this level, somebody who's a co-founder, he was one of the pillars of this company. Obviously, he started this from day one with me and Kusin. Again, the same way you you know, I told you that be honest with your co-founder, be also very open with your employees. Because they need to know as well before everybody else. They need to know before things go bad. They need to know what's happening. And I think, again, communicating with them was also made us a lot stronger. So again, yeah, I think it's taboo because there's a misconception of what it represents. I think it can be turned into a strength if managed properly. Because it's very banal if you think about it. Somebody you know who is not a fit for a market, for a company, It happens every day in a lot of companies and then people move on to do other things. So just go with it. Go with it.
0: How would you recommend people structure that departure, right? The conversation. Should they talk to the co-founder first, settle it, then talk to the investor, then talk to employees? Or how would you go about that sequence?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, obviously co-founder to co-founder is the heart of where it needs to happen. Letting anything through before you have that settled is, I think, uh, in my opinion, a mistake because this is where things can go south is then people, you know, the hearsays, et cetera. I think manage that first, then speak to your investors because they are the ones who trusted you very early on, you know, on providing you the tools and the money to, for your business to grow. And it kind of happens, again, very naturally and in the sequence is quite organic and they happen really fast from, you know, very close to each other your employees obviously follow right after that everybody is kind of on the same boat so there's no right sequence but for sure the the speaking to your co-founder first is the key and then you know you have parallel discussions i guess with everybody
0: else once you have agreed on
1: with your co-founder
0: team yeah how do you manage your own emotions i guess during that process so how do you as a founder who is having someone depart do you like I don't know, go through the seven stages of grief? Or what, what, go, what goes through emotionally and how do you handle it?
1: Uh, it's hard. It's hard emotionally. I think this is the, actually the hardest because the impact on the business was, uh, I mean, everything was quite smooth. Life of a company, it's the life of a company to keep going. And you know, when you have a business that you know has hundreds of brands come in and work every day, it kind of keeps you going where this is the drive is what's happening operationally. And when the business is fast growing, it's the biggest drive right but emotionally you lose a friend that you were speaking to every day so obviously you know we have we still have to date a whatsapp group where we exchange about soccer and what's happening in the tech world and industry and about you know news of our personal lives and we still have the same group and it's still it's still called caption founders i think if you can manage to keep a relationship personal relationship with the person who left fantastic that's amazing I think the impact was more a uh, friendship one, but it didn't disappear. It just, it changed. It changed because we were not working together anymore. But again, the day-to-day catches up to you and uh, you wake up every day with more business. <laughs> and that's what gets you back in very, very fast. There's no time to grief. So yeah, you, you keep going.
0: Awesome. You just keep going. I love that. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by paraphrasing the three big themes I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you for sharing about how you know Lazada, as well as your experience in China, was really the inspiration for a lot of your career, both in terms of culture, in terms of e-commerce, in terms of uh, Southeast Asia, as well as the global trends. And so that was really interesting to hear you compare and contrast some of the different trends that were going on. Secondly, thanks for sharing your insights around you know influencer marketing and the differences that you see across the region. And lastly, thanks for your deep dive around co-founder departures and how it's actually very normal and very common and it's very professional and it can be very smooth versus, I think, the taboos around it and the fear and the emotionality that's around there that can make it hard to process and make it hard to have a good outcome. And so thank you so much for, I think, being very frank and open about that whole process about how to steer through that difficult, awkward And long conversation to get to where the business can keep going, right? And everyone else can keep on going as well. So, thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome, Jeremy. It was great being here. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.